Hello and welcome. I'm Neil Patel. Today's episode is a fun one. It's about an enormous part of the economy that's been completely reinvented by technology that all of us experience every day and which most of us don't pay any serious attention to. I'm talking, of course, about advertising. Modern advertising is a data-intensive operation that has way more to do with technology and how it's deployed than any of the Mad Men-era stereotypes we're all familiar with. When Mark Zuckerberg tells Congress Facebook is free because it sells ads, Senator, we run ads. What he's talking about is a massive ecosystem of data collection, user targeting, and sales tracking that allows businesses of all sizes to find the right customers in the right place at the right time. Now, that's the oldest advertising cliche in the book, but Facebook and Google have the ability to do it at a scale that's turned them into giants. And that's upended other traditionally ad-supported industries like the news media and television in ways that no one ever really expected. On top of that, there's an entire ecosystem of influencers who make all of their money doing brand deals, an entirely new approach to selling products on social media. Now, if you've been following the tech industry, the broad strokes of what I just described are pretty familiar. But one thing that struck me for a while now is that, well, we pay a lot of attention to Facebook and Google. We pay a lot of attention to the users of those services, and we pay a lot of attention to influencers. But we never really hear from the money, the people who actually buy the ads. So on today's episode, I'm talking to Melissa Grady, the chief marketing officer of Cadillac. She's the person in charge of all of Cadillac's advertising. It's her budget, and the way she spends it is fascinating. I am weirdly passionate about statistics. I met Melissa at a breakfast last year, and I was absolutely struck by how much she talks about data. Her job is to sell Cadillacs, but she uses an enormous array of technology to get it done. This is normally where I'd give notes on business jargon or other inside baseball concepts that we talk about in the interview, but advertising is such a complicated subject that I actually started by asking Melissa to explain the absolute basics. Like, how do you buy an ad? And how do you measure what you're paying for? How you buy an ad, it's very interesting, and it goes back to you figure out who your target is, you figure out where they are, and then you have an IO, which is an insertion order, and you fill it out and you say, I want to... Like on paper? <laughs> Electronic now. You just made a pen motion, so I was yeah. like... Yeah, you know, because actually it's funny that, that you say that I did that because I was thinking about how not automated that is too much of the time. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so then you go and then uh, your ad runs and then people come back and they say, you were supposed to get X... You actually got Y. What are, what are the units of X and Y? Usually impressions, sometimes okay. engagements, sometimes views. So on YouTube, we won't buy impressions, we'll buy views because too many people are skipping, right? So if you were supposed to get X and Y is bigger, then everybody is happy. We're all smiling. We're all nodding. Here's how we'll do it again. And if Y was less than X, then we get what's called a, a make good or an ADU. And we go back and we say... Okay, now because I said you were going to get a million and you got 700,000, I'm going to give you these three or 400,000 in these places. Sports have been interesting lately because coming back into sports, I thought, I think we all thought that sports were going to be through the roof. But the truth is, people haven't been buying sports. So we bought some spots, uh, like in the NBA finals, and then got extra because not enough people had watched. I also asked Melissa to explain how she knows whether her ads are successful or not. After all, her goal is to sell more cars. But how can she know if a website banner ad is helping her more than a TV ad during an NFL game? 
It turns out that big advertisers will actually buy ad spots and then use them for things like public service announcements, showing them to a small group of people so they can create a control group, a base case to see if people that saw the real ads actually reacted to them. For a TV ad, we actually will do studies with panels of people and ask them, do you remember seeing any of these ads? What did you like? Whatever, and then we measure it that way. For digital or addressable, we will hold out our control groups. We also have like an overall model that we do that will tell us multi-line advertising works better than this if you do this. So like there's that. So there's just a lot of different ways that you experiment. And then, you know, sometimes you're looking at what percent of people engaged with the ad or things like that, which is, you know, they were given the opportunity to, did they or not. I find all of this completely fascinating. This is how the money on the internet works now. And people like Melissa control the budgets that push and pull different parts of the tech industry in various ways. If you know me at all, you would expect my conversation with the CMO of Cadillac to be mostly about the new Escalade. But really, we talked about data privacy and how Apple and Google's plans to stop tracking people using cookies in web browsers will change the ad industry. Yeah, and we talked about the Escalade a little bit because I love Escalades. All right, Melissa Grady, CMO of Cadillac. Here we go. Melissa Grady, you're the CMO of Cadillac. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. I am very excited to talk to you. I feel like so much of the culture of the internet and really the world runs on advertising and it's it's not really ex- explored outside of AdWorld. So I'm excited for you to help me understand it. You have a CMO of Cadillac that stands for Chief Marketing Officer. You've had that job for a little bit over a year? Yeah, yeah. Give me just a sense of your, your background. How does one become the CMO of Cadillac? So I think as far as CMOs go, I'm more of an interesting story because I really grew up in data-driven marketing. And that has been my passion since I was in college. I am weirdly passionate about statistics, but also I think why I'm in marketing and, and not doing something else is I love the combination of right brain and left brain thinking. So how do you take data and drive insight, which then drives really great creative, really great planning? And all of those things is so important. And, you know, it's it's obvious because you can you can have the best data analysis in the world, but we use blank ads for control groups, right? Like we're able to now do control groups when we do advertising. And when you run nothing or you run public service announcements, you see, you don't see the results. So it's not just about who you're targeting, it's how you're connecting with them. And so this is like literally that whole thing is my whole career. Give me a, a just a, the most basic rundown of what a CMO does every day. You wake up, how do you begin? It's really funny because I get asked this question a lot. I cannot tell you a, a general day. And I think it's it's interesting because you move through so many different things. Like just today, I was in some future product meetings and we're talking about the future of Super Cruise and EV vehicles. We had a holiday luncheon. I played some trivia. That was a fun little aside. I'm sitting here doing a podcast with you, which is something I think I hadn't really thought a lot about when I was thinking about what being a CMO would be. There is this side of, you know, doing different presentations, you know, almost being on a stage sometimes that I think was an interesting aspect I hadn't thought as much about. 
And then obviously a ton of time on brand campaigns, on targeting strategies, um, you know, just those kind of things that we think about when we think about marketing. Let me try that uh, a different way. What are some decisions you have to make? What does your decision set look like? Yeah, It's again, like it's across the board. It's really, it touches everything. And I think anything that touches the customer is something that marketing is either putting input into or making decisions on. So again, when we look at what is the customer experience of the future, um, how are people going to seamlessly shop? Um, what are our digital experiences? What commercial is going to be on TV? Who's going to to be the lead in the commercial? All, all of those things. Um, and it's I think it's broader than I would have thought it was going to be. I ask everybody for their decision-making framework, how they think about making decisions. You've worked in a bunch of different industries. Data-driven advertising and targeting is a new way of thinking about it. What is your framework? How has it evolved? So I think probably not surprising. It's very heavily uh, reliant on data. And so when I when I look at things and the way that I make decisions is I like to have a lot of data. And I think my brain almost starts to categorize things. Like if, if you think about, I, I like statistics and that works for me. So I tend to almost plot things out. I can give you a, ve a very random example that um, has nothing to do with cars or my career, but will explain how I start to make decisions and, and understand things. I take things apart and then I put them back together. Now, a good example of this is I really like wine. And there are some wines that I like better than others. And I don't know how to describe them. So I started asking when I would like a wine, I would have the sommelier or someone who understands wine describe it to me. And what I understood and what I started to see was there's certain words that are repeated in this. I like earthy. I like spicy, sometimes a little leather. I don't know actually what any of those things mean, <laughs> but I know that I like them because I've seen the frequency of them. So that's how my brain works. Let me just like pull that down. So when we look at any decision that I'm making on a regular day, the first thing I want to know is who's the customer? Who's it going to impact? What's important to them or how do they see things? And then I will you know, ask all of my direct reports, tell me what you think about this. I gather the information, my brain parses it out. And then I'm like, okay, here I go. This is what I want. One thing that's really striking about this, and it was, it struck me the first time we ever talked to each other. I think a lot of people think of advertising in this, this madman context of creatives and brand campaigns and photo shoots. You have what seems like a very data-driven job, essentially a tech job. Is that how you think of it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I absolutely do. What's very funny is my late grandfather was basically Mad Men. He was in advertising in the 50s. He was a very successful photographer. And so we used to trade a lot of notes. And I think he was fascinated by how things have really kind of come along and, and changed. And yeah, I think, you know, underpinning any good marketing strategy today, you need a really strong technology and analytics strategy um, and you still need the good creative, but I think that, you know, once you get to a good insight, which is really, you know, data research driven, that's when you can really get to good creative. So, um, and I, and I love technology and, and how things work and are put together and evolving. So at the really basic nuts and bolts level of it, you have a big ad budget. Cadillac does not skimp on its ad budget. You have a big, a big chunk of money and you decide how to spend it. And that is on things like TV advertising, on I don't know, podcast ads, on radio spots, print, 
digital, all the stuff. Yes. The flip side of it, which, and I, I think that's the part I want to explore, but the flip side of it is there's an entire economy that's based on people like you spending that money. Yeah. Is an article of culture that is supported by advertising by and large. Broadcast television for years and years and years, now it's shifting to streaming, but still the engine of the television industry is advertising. Yep. Uh, print magazines collapsing because those ads don't perform as well as they used to because no one reads print. On and on and on. Do you think about the flip side of your job when you spend those dollars, that advertising powers the culture in that way? Yeah, I, it's, it is an interesting thing. I think about it a lot, and I, there's a few different examples I can give. I think one of the things I'm thinking a lot about now and, and that my team he- hears me say a lot is the world's going cookie-less, and everyone is sort of freaking out about cookies are going away. Can you explain... Can you explain what a cookie is in this context? Yes, I can. The easiest way to know what a cookie is, is it's a it's a digital identifier of who you are. Um, it's something that, you know, as you go around the internet, um, it's a little piece of code that will follow you. The way that if you're not familiar with cookies, you know what cookies are, is number one, if you go back to a website that you've been to before and it recognizes you, that's because of a cookie. Um, the flip side of that is, you were shopping for a Christmas present for your husband, and now he's getting ads for it on his computer because you're on the same Wi-Fi system. That's all all because of cookies, um, and it's really about how we anonymously track people on the internet. So as we're moving away from cookies, and there's you know this whole deprecation of, of cookies and what that's going to mean for advertisers, because it really is how we are, when we talk about, you know, everyone knows that advertisers are targeting people and we're looking at who we target. That's how we do it today. And I am very concerned about how we deal with that in the short term. But my response to that is, look, we've seen this before. And what we're going to see right now is a ton of innovation because advertising is where the money is. And if that money will go away because cookies have gone away, really, you have a lot of smart people and you have money involved, innovation is going to start happening on how we now come and approach that. So um, I think there's some early indications of how, you know, you'll, you know, your first party becomes more important, how you're matching first party to first party data. But I think like this is where over the next year and a half, we're going to see a lot of innovation because to your point, everything's not everything. A lot of things are run by advertising and no one's going to let that just go away and no one's going to let that not work anymore. It's funny. Um, I asked some people in my part of the ad world what I should talk to you about. And one of the first things that came up was cookie The phrase they used was cookie apocalypse, <laughs> uh, which I thought was very good. So it's, it's, it's on my list here of things to talk to you about. Specifically, what you're saying is Apple is being very aggressive with Safari and the iPhone and on the Mac to stop tracking, to to block it. And then Google is supposed to do it in 2022. I think they're a little bit more worried about antitrust stuff because they control a browser and they're already in trouble. But you're saying the primary mechanism of ad targeting is going away. You said first party. What do you mean by first party? So what happens is, and there's a few different ways to, to break this down, but you know, now when you go onto a website, you have to accept that they're, if they're going to track you or not. And so if you trust someone, by the way, a lot, it's what we don't realize. And I think this is what's so interesting. What we don't realize is how much we appreciate advertising. And as you have to start to pay for more and more subscriptions and you realize how much advertising was fueling, I think people are going to start to go back to some of the 
oh my gosh, now I'm, now I'm paying $200 a month for all these different TV subscription services. But if I let Hulu give me ads and I let Sling give me ads, then I'm going to, you know, have, that's going to go down. So I think people are, what's going to happen is people are going to understand the exchange a little bit more, which I think will be really interesting. But, you know, as we go through it and what that means, it's there, you're going to realize why and where you appreciate cookies and being tracked. And for example, you know, if you have to go to a website and you have to keep filling out the same five questions and it's something that you go to three times a week, it's like your bank or it's, you know, where you shop or something where you know you have a relationship and you want them to remember you because you get tired of having to have to answer the same thing, you're going to start to say, oh yeah, please, like, here's my cookie, like, take my information, but let me understand how you're sharing it. And so having visibility into how people are sharing things is going to become more important. And then I think, you know, what, what we're going to do is then when we have information about people and people have said, yep, when it's serving me, you can share it, then that that's, so first of all, as an advertiser, that's your first party data. Someone has said, here's here's my information. You order something, you fill out a form, or you say, please remember me. That's your first party data. Um, it took me a long time to get there. but <laughs> So as you look at first party and then third party data, third party data being when someone buys information. So if I have a million people who have signed up to hear about the Cadillac Lyric and want information, that's my first party data. If I think that a website that talks about electric cars might have a good list that we want to talk to and I want to talk to their million people, that's third-party data. So as we, you know, today, a lot of the internet runs on third-party data or people using other people's data. How you use your data and then sometimes are talking to or matching with other people, I think is going to become really the way. So when we look at how and why I'm less worried about cookies. And trust me, I'm, I'm worried about it, especially as we try to understand web traffic and things like that. But from an advertising perspective, we work with our agency, which is Dentsu, and they have a platform called M1, which is like a, it's, you know, a lot of people know like Experian or something like that. Someone who has all the data of all the people, basically. Well, we're working with them. We don't ever see that data. And then they anonymize it we know who we want to target or work with. They go out to people who they have relationships with, who they know are safe. And in an anonymous way, then we start to target. So it's really interesting because I think a lot of it will go back to, you know, how advertising used to be way back of like, okay, you have a good audience. I'm going to talk to you. Here's who I want to, you know, it's going to become, people are going to have a lot more control. And, and in the end, I think we'll all end up in a better place because when it comes down to it, I don't really want to talk to everyone and I surely don't want to be spamming people because I don't know who they are. So as we get to this better place, I think we're just going to have to be a lot more specific. There's the old adage that marketers always love to talk about, the Wanamaker's dilemma of, I know 50% of my advertising is wasted. I just don't know which 50%. Well, I think we're getting to a point where you're going to have more specific relationships and and that's just not really going to be a thing anymore. So let me zoom you all the way out. I feel like I could fall down that rabbit hole with you for the next hour, but let me pull this all the way back. Cadillac just introduced a new Escalade. It's very fancy. It has, it was a 38 inch OLED screen. It's got super cruise self-drive. I've configured this thing 50 times on your website. I can't get it to be under a hundred thousand dollars. So you got a hundred thousand dollar, super truck that you're selling people. 
you're the person in charge of marketing it. How do you start? So the, the first thing with this, and again, we'll go back to how do I handle things. So the first thing we started with is data. Who are the current Escalade owners? We did some modeling on those people to understand who were the new potential Escalade owners. Then we got into the insight portion of it. And there's something that's very true about Cadillac. And then there's something that's very true about Escalade because there's like, a, you know, Escalade's a, the same but different and, and I can explain it. So when you get to the insight of a Cadillac person, and this goes back throughout our history and it's so fascinating. Well, I'll tell you one really fascinating fact. When you go into our database of owners, the thing that indexes probably the highest is someone's job title. And the job title that indexes the highest is president or CEO. The reason for that is because we've got a bunch of entrepreneurs and self-made people. There's this drive of people who are people who push themselves, who have like, you know, started like low, they've, they've worked their whole lives, they've gotten to a certain point. They reward themselves with a Cadillac. It's this thing. Um, and it goes like, if you go all the way back to Motown, the stories are like, you all, like, it seems like everyone knows the story of in Motown, as soon as you got a hit record, you got a Cadillac. And that feeling of reward and entrepreneurship and that, that type of person is very consistent across Cadillac. Now, as we look at the Escalade, um, and our, our campaign is called Never Stop Arriving, this Cadillac person, and you know, Regina King is the person who is featured in our ad for the Cadillac. Because success isn't just about where you want to get to. It's also about how you get there. The reason that we've been working with her is we wrote a manifesto earlier in the year that really resonated with her. She was like, look, you guys are really talking about me. And like a, a Cadillac goes, when you get down to that net of what I just said, if I needed to net it down, Cadillac represents the American dream. If I want it and I work hard enough, I can get there. And so when we wrote this manifesto and Regina was introduced to it right before the Oscars, she was like, that's my story. You know, I started as an extra and I had a TV show then I was in some movies, like you may have heard of Jerry Maguire, but not the main character. Then she's, you know, an Oscar-winning actress who's now a director. And so the the other side of that and where Escalade is that layer on top and why we went with Never Stop Arriving is it's this person who gets success and then doesn't lean on, on their success or say, hey, here I am. They're like, now what am I going to do next? How am I going to, like, how am I going to keep making the world better? How am I going to keep making myself better? Whatever. So there's like a lot of background on how we got to never stop arriving. So now we know what we want to do with this campaign. And the basic of how we go about how we market is we've got the data, we've got the insight. Now you understand all that. The third piece of it is show up differently, innovate. So when you look at our Escalade campaign, we ran some TV. So we know, we know where our audience is. And that's just a clear, that's an obvious, here's the data, here's the output. So we run our ads in digital, in addressable very heavily, and in TV. Wait, what do you mean by addressable? So addressable TV is much like if you think about digital ad buying. Addressable TV is TV that is not, you know, you have regular broadcast TV, as you were saying, right? Addressable is where we know who is watching. Like there's a subscriber base, and so you know who's watching something. And then we can deliver 
relevant ads so that um, we can select an audience just like in digital. You select an audience, you target them. And so, it, you know, the, the net of it is if you and I are sitting in two different apartments in New York and we're next to each other, you may see a different ad than me. This is like the holy grail of television advertising. It's been I've heard this talked about for a long time. I'm watching Hulu. They know who I am. They're going to serve me a different ad than you. You're saying that's art. That's already happening. It's absolutely like a, we've shifted a good portion of our budget this year into addressable and actually addressable TV to like get away from Escalade for a minute. Addressable TV actually really helped save us during the pandemic for, for a lot of reasons. So if you want to talk about the beauty of addressable, we were able to do this. Number one, we stopped production as did everyone else, right? So we don't have a lot of inventory. Number two, we know how regional COVID was. So while New York was shut down, there were parts of the country that hadn't yet been affected. And number three, we, we knew what our incentive structure was and our inventory. So we've got, we know inventory, we know how people are feeling, and we know incentives. We were then able to, on a market by market basis, say, here's the messaging we're going to have in New York. And it's all about, we have your back. People don't need to, to see any kind of like, you know, fun advertising right now. I think there's in the beginning of the pandemic, all of us marketers had the like somber, whatever advertising you had, to, you had to do it. And it worked really well. Then the beauty of addressable is I think we all know that the moment that we were done with that advertising and you just needed something a little uplifting, right? So every two weeks we were updating our creative and we were able to figure out region by region what creative to play where based on how people were feeling, what they were going through, and what our inventory was. So, you know, in New York, we might be saying, healthcare workers, we can help you with a car purchase discount, and here's what we have, versus in Texas, you know, we might still be running an XT6 ad because people were still, you know, kind of, you know, living a lot more normally. They're able to, to socially distance, so they didn't have to worry as much. That's incredible. So how do you track that? Because it, underlying all of this, all of your data collection is a sense that you're collecting all the data because you can see how well this stuff works. Yeah. Right. So let me just offer the the simplest example so we can hook on to something that, that everybody can understand. We read ads on this podcast. I say, go to this website. I know that advertiser is tracking how many times people use a promo code. That's how they measure in a just the most brute force way if their ad on this podcast was effective. You're obviously not having people in Texas use promo code. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to do it, I'm, you know, let's innovate. But I'm curious, how do you, when you've got your your fancy addressable ads running on, on different markets with different campaigns, how are you tracking what's effective and what's actually turning into the sale of an Escalade? Uh, we're tracking sales. So that's that's the beauty of addressable. What we do is if we, say, have... 2 million people in a market that we want to target. We'll hold out a control group. Um, and there's a lot of syndicated data that like, you know, we'll go back to Polk. There's a lot of syndicated data on who bought a vehicle. So all in a, again, using this privacy safe environment that we have, we build out this segment, um, we hold out a control group, and then we go back and we look how many people purchased, how many people in the control group purchased, and what's our lift? So, you know, for someone who loves statistics and experiments and data, it's pretty fun. Let me ask you a, another really, really basic threshold question, which I think every generation goes through this. Does advertising work? Right. Like I'm at the tippy top of you're saying you have to say yes. 
If you can't, if you, the audience can't see Melissa, but she started vigorously saying yes. But I'll have a good verbal answer. <laughs> okay, but what I mean is, you're measured, I think, at the simplest level on whether sales went up or not, right? You do a bunch of stuff, you collect your data, you spend the money on marketing. At the end of the day, the CEO of Cadillac is like, "Did it work? Did we sell more Cadillacs than we would have if we hadn't done anything else?" Or is there something else you're measured on? In the end, it all nets down to sales. Of course, we we also look at brand opinion. Um, we track things like that, opinion and consideration, which I'll divert for a second on why that's important. This was really interesting to me. There was a study done, a, th- a third-party study done during the recession, and it was looking at how brands went down and then bounced back, and they separated it based on having a strong, an average, or a low opinion and consideration. And brands that had a stronger opinion stayed high longer and bounced back faster. So there's actually like data behind why opinion, because it feels a little soft, you know, when you talk about it. So for for me, again, I've always, I've got to peel things back. I've got to understand the data. This is why I'm okay with opinion consideration. But does advertising work? It definitely does. And I think, you know, we all think about advertising as annoying and it is sometimes, but people actually love advertising. And like a few examples of that are... Every ad person says this to me. Yeah, but I'll give you some examples of things I've done, but then I'll just like give you the basic one. How many people are so excited on Super Bowl Sunday to see all the ads? Like that's good advertising. And when advertising is good, we don't mind it. Now I'll tell you, as we go back to Escalate and I'll finish up on my third box <laughs> of how I come up with that plan is we start to look for different activations and how are we going to show up differently? So we're going to run the TV ads. Um, the TV ad features Regina. It shows Super Cruise really well, shows the speakers. It's very cool. But then we have a lot of different activations. And one of them, for instance, was we uh, sponsored James Blake's new song. And in this, we had a bunch of Escalades um, drive some of his, we had a, a, like a contest to find his best fans. We drove them to, I, I believe it was a hangar, um, out in LA, he performed for them. And then we gave a first listen of that song. So the Cadillac messaging within there, it showed off the features of the vehicle pretty well, but it wasn't like a sponsored by Cadillac. But, you know, everyone who watched that new song knows that Cadillac has a new Escalade. And that's something like they, you know, the 30 million people who watched that video enjoyed that experience. And, and now they know about Cadillac. So I always try to be additive to an experience and less interruptive. And that's, again, why good creative and good insight is so important. Because we don't like if a commercial is really funny or good, we don't mind it as much. I'm not saying we we love them, but like, you know, <laughs> the more that you can do things that make it interesting, like I'm talking about podcasting, um, we've been experimenting a lot with podcast advertising. And for the Escalade, one of the things we did is um, within the one of the podcast players, we had um, the, if you've configured it, the Escalade visualizer was in there. So as you're listening, you could play around with the Escalade. And we had a, a roadblock where our segment heard Regina before the podcast. And then we had this ad in there. So you have to say what a roadblock is. Oh, good call. So you can either do an experience roadblock or an audience roadblock. And I'll explain what that means. So roadblock is where every single person within a period of time experiences whatever your advertising is. So the way that used to be um, is, and everyone will remember this, if you would go to a homepage like yahoo.com and you'd see a big ad that was there for a day or two, that's called a roadblock. 
for an audience, if there's a certain audience that you're buying, only those people will experience that ad when they get there. So this was an audience roadblock of Regina talking about the Escalade. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I've got some questions about data privacy and platforms. Okay, we're back. You and I are talking on the day that the government is suing to break up Facebook. They just they filed the lawsuit 20 minutes before we got on the air. You've talked a lot about data and tracking and making sure, you know, you're converting into actual sales of a car. When most people think about data and the internet and tracking, they think about Google and Facebook. We have endless conversations about privacy. First, I'm curious how like you are talking about an awful lot of data and an awful lot of tracking. So I'm curious for how you think about privacy. And then in the context of Google and Facebook, they have the most data, but they're not, I don't think of Cadillac advertising showing up on Facebook. So I'm curious how you think about those two platforms. So let's start with privacy. You've, you have talked a lot about data and tracking. How do you think about privacy? Is it, I mean, this tracking is what the industry runs on right now, the advertising industry. So how are you thinking about that evolving? So there's a few things on this. And I think one one thing that I'll say is I look at how I've grown in my thinking on this over like the past 10 years, because again, I go back to like, I'm a data geek. And what we were all talking about for the past 20 years is when we can actually specifically target people, we can get the right person with the right message at the right time, we're going to know we're going to be able to track it. And so 10 years ago or so, and it really was probably 10 years ago, when some of this really started to come to fruition, I was very excited and I was full force. How do, you know, how do we work with this partner? How do we do that? Whatever. And I think as you started to see how different people were using data or how like, you know, people not understanding what they were opting into or whatever, I think that I started to realize, hey, we need to be really careful here. And I will say it from a GM perspective, GM on anything that's safety related that has to do with anything, and I've never seen anything like it, is so far to the to the right. Like we are going to be as careful as possible, whether it's with a person's life. Um, and you know, if you look at our zero crashes, zero emissions, zero congestion, like we want zero crash, we want people to be safe that extends to their data and their privacy. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing at GM. We start every meeting with a safety message. And when I first joined, I almost didn't believe it. And I was like, oh, that's going to be like a weird kind of fad. But we actually, you know, it's something that Mary came up with while she's been here. And, you know, how do we really take safety personal and, and do it every day? This will get back to data, but it's just an, it's an interesting fact of like, you know, we start to share personal stories and, you know, it'll be someone will tell a story of I was uh, putting up my Christmas lights and I fell off a ladder. So be really careful. Or um, I saw someone who got in a t like terrible car crash from texting and driving. So like, let's remember to don't walk around looking at your phone. All these things that like really start to ingrain into your own brain and to the, the GM culture in a way I've never seen. So when we talk about people's data and privacy, like, as much as I personally think it's really important, GM also is just like highest of standards. So now as we talk about having people understand what they're opting into, um, having different levels of control, only working with partners where we know what's going on. And, and again, like, you know, now with our agency who I've, they've been through the highest levels of, of clearance and we know how they're doing everything. And then they anonymize 
So like then, you know, it's just, it's the safety net around people. So I think as much as I was so excited 10 years ago, now I think there's a, there's a big responsibility that we have because again, there's a lot of money at stake, which sometimes leads to not the best behavior in certain do you think Facebook and Google have been as responsible as, as GM? Um, you know, I think that there are very public examples of Facebook learning some lessons. I think Google, you know, seems, I don't know as many examples of that. I think, you know, Google within their own ecosystem, there's more visibility into what's going on. I think when you look out and now, and that, and I guess, again, if I look at that, that's a uh, them being secure in their ecosystem, as it started to be clear what could happen, they really locked it down. So, you know, I think they're probably learning. <laughs> they're on a journey. That leads me into talking about platforms and how, how you think about platform advertising and broadly what you think it's good for. We spend a lot of time covering YouTube and Instagram. They have ad formats. They're big, valuable businesses for those companies. Do you think that advertising, those formats are as effective for you as addressable TV or print advertising or the NFL or wherever else you are. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely. And, and again, when we talk about being additive to an experience and, and making sure that what we're doing is relevant in the experience, it's like a lot of buzzwords, but really what it nets down to is like on Instagram, we've been doing, we have a, a something called Cadillac Live. Cadillac Live is a showroom that we have in Canada where all of our vehicles are there and people can dial in on basically a one-way Zoom, and they have their own auto show specialist there to describe the vehicle to them. It's pretty cool. And, and in the pandemic, it really saved us because if people couldn't go into showrooms, they could just dial into Cadillac Live. So on Instagram, we'll do broadcasts from Cadillac Live. And we had one a couple weeks ago where the lead product person on Escalade was showing the first Escalade versus the current. And then we boosted it so that more people could have the opportunity to see it. That's really good advertising on Instagram. It really helps us. You know, you, it's like you get your word out to people. Um, YouTube is the same. I think I try to be very careful on YouTube because the easy thing to do is to take your TV commercial, cut it down to 15 seconds and run it on YouTube. And I think that's really annoying to people who are watching YouTube. So I'm trying to find ways that we do more interesting things. Like a for instance on this is with the X-T6 launch, we actually had six second videos it's amazing how quickly you can get a, a point across in six seconds. We ran those on YouTube. So instead of someone having to watch the whole thing, they're like, oh, that's cute. And then they're on their way. So what I try to be careful of is to um, to make it more fun for people so that they do enjoy it. Um, so I think each platform has its benefit, but YouTube and Instagram are great. When you think about those formats, I always wonder what advertisers think of the skip ad button on YouTube, which is YouTube's great innovation for users. They only have to sit through, what is four seconds before you can skip the ad? And my instinct is that everybody skips the ad. Does that bother you? Does that work for you? Do you? Am I totally wrong? Do people sit through the ads? People do a lot, actually. But that's always like exactly what you said and what I said before. That's always my challenge to the creative team. You have three seconds. What are you going to do in those three seconds that's going to make someone not going to skip it? And if they do, to make sure that they got the message. Um, so that's just how we look at it. But you do, it's, it is interesting how many people actually watch the ads, which goes back to my point of, you know, you think you want to skip it, but if it's interesting enough. And so that's our, that's our challenge as marketers. We've got to, we've got to step up to the challenge. This is my second question about apocalypse. YouTube has frequent adpocalypses. 
where they demonetize creators, where they've got a moderation problem. You know, over the summer, we saw organizations like Sleeping Giants comment big advertisers and say, you got to walk away from Facebook. You have to walk away from from Fox News in the context of where we started, which is advertising funds so much of the culture. Does does that stuff hit you? Do you think, okay, YouTube is a little crazy right now. I'm going to pull those dollars away until they figure out whatever controversy is happening right now. So I'll give you like a yes and answer on that. If there's something that we feel is misaligned with our brand, we don't want to be there. And so as we advertise, we have really strong inclusion and exclusion lists of sites, content, things like that. And whenever we're made aware of a problem or we end up somewhere when something like that's going on, like, I don't want to be there because I don't like, I don't want Cadillac to stand for that. Like Cadillac has a lot of meaning and we're, we're very careful about what our brand means. Um, it's got a long history and, and it's got a long history of inclusion and standing up for people and helping people who want to help themselves. And that's like, a, that's strong and powerful. And, and I can't ruin that by, by being in the wrong place. So it's, you know, it's, it's important for that. I think, you know, sometimes in this world, we have to stand up and whatever the format of that is that we're, we're willing to. What's the mechanic of that? Do you, you get a, you get a text and then you pick up the phone and you're like, Susan, pull my ads off YouTube. Like, how does that actually work? <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't know. That's what I imagine is that you've got like a red phone to the CEO of YouTube and you're always just yelling at her. Like, I don't know. No, what's funny is like, you're not that far off. Like normally, <laughs> like, that's what happened. Like if, if something, something runs where it shouldn't or something like that, you start getting texts and IMs or you have an, you know, an angry customer that writes in. It's amazing how much people will write in and tell your opinions, which is, it's interesting actually. But so yeah, something like that will happen. And then we will go back and say, what happened? We're not supposed to be there. There's like this little forensic thing of this is how it got there. Or if it's something new, then it's like, get it off now. We're not going to be part of that. So uh, that is that is basically how that happens. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was influencer marketing. And the reason I'm asking about controversial content is it seems to me that influ- like influencers broadly are an entrepreneurial bunch. They're successes. I think the influencer and creator economy is amazing. The platforms have enabled it. There's still a lot of 25 year old millionaires out there. And to me, the idea that we're going to give the keys to a hundred thousand dollar super truck to a 25 year old millionaire seems very risky. So I'm curious how much influencer marketing do you do? How effective do you think it is? Do you, is there just like a, a parking lot full of wrecked XT six is somewhere like how, how do you be- manage the cost of that versus the reward? Um, so a few things on that. And I think we are, again, going back to, we know what we stand for. We know what our values are and our influencers are very well aligned with that. Um, so like, you know, Regina King. So you think of Regina King as an influencer? Um, not in the same way, but I think that she's someone who is like, I guess, yes and no. I think there's influencers who are just people, but who by definition have a large social following, have a large presence, have a way about in the world. Um, And then there are like the YouTube stars, right? So we're not giving a lot of YouTube stars cars. No, we are giving like the example. I think that the two that I immediately thought of, you you look at someone like Regina Kate, right? Who I don't worry about. I think she stands for a lot of good things in the world. One of the influencers that that we work with is um, John Henry, who is in his 20s. And he just, again, I'm not, I'm not worried about what he's going to do because he's someone who stands for the right things. He's very aligned with us. He's a young entrepreneur. We recorded the show Hustle with him 
uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and we've just remained partners. A another one is Melissa Butler from the Lip Bar. Uh, she started the Lip Bar and she's pretty awesome. She like she was on Wall Street and was just like, I'm doing the wrong thing and started Lip Bar. And I think, you know, probably went through before that was such a success, went through a lot of like, you know, people being like, how could you leave such a good job? Um, but like when you have people like that, who are these strong-willed people who want to do better in their life, whatever, if you're striving to be the best you, then you're less likely to, to do something like what you're saying. Maybe maybe step out of, uh, out of your Cadillac role for a second and into your big think about the advertising industry role. Do you think influencer marketing is successful? Is it growing? Because it when I think about YouTubers and I think about Instagram stars, they don't make any money from the platform, right? Like the average YouTuber, yep, they're getting checks from YouTube AdSense and whatever in like their partner programs. The real money comes from the brand deals they make. The real money comes from the products they endorse or the integrations they have. We see it over and over again. And I'm just, I'm wondering, maybe maybe Cadillac isn't doing it as directly, or maybe you are. Uh, I'm curious about that. But do you see it working as, a, as another category of advertising that is competitive with television and digital and all the other stuff? I think in the right categories, it really does. So, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, I'm trying, I have a 16 year old niece, so I'm like trying to think of a specific example she's given me. I can't think of one, but if she sees someone who she's watching on YouTube all the time and they're talking about this lip bar lipsticks, for instance, to go back to Melissa Butler, then she's going to be like, oh, lip bar is really cool. I, like that absolutely works. Um, so when you're in a, in a category like that, that is something that is a, is a more accessible product and, you know, not as big a purchase. I think it's a lot harder on, as you were saying, a hundred thousand dollar escalate to have that influence with those people. Although I will tell you when, you know, some of the, the car people on YouTube we're talking to, and we've given some CT five V's to, to like, get them to talk about it because how they review a car definitely works. So, you know, I think there's like, there's different levels and ways into it, but like overall, yeah, it definitely works. The reason I really want to talk about influencers is because I know Cadillac is moving into EVs. It's a big shift. I'm curious how you shift a brand that way. I know it, it's not without its uh, controversies and challenges, but you're doing it. Arguably the biggest influencer in car world is Elon Musk. Tesla does not do any marketing besides Twitter accounts and, and, and stunts. Have you ever thought about making Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, like a Twitter maniac? <laughs> Have you ever thought about taking Roya Harvey, who's the CEO of Cadillac, and just letting him loose on social media? Um, I think so. The I'll say yes and no. Like the, the <laughs> thing about it is. What percentage yes to be, go loose on social media? I think I would love like, you know, for for Rory to have a really strong social media presence. The thing about it is that no one at GM is going to be the same way. And like, let me just give you like an example of like how how it's different when, you know, Elon will will go say something and then stock prices are like going up or tanking or something like that. It's it's a it's a weird luxury that they that they have that like at GM you just like you can't have the same sort of discourse on a social media platform. I think that Mary's incredible. Um, and as much as we can get her voice out into the world, that's great. I just think how we approach EVs is going to be very, very different than the Elon Musk effect, which is incredible, honestly. 
when you think about all the tools that we've talked about, there is digital advertising across platforms, there's digital advertising across publications, there's addressable TV, there's influencer marketing, there's four second ads on YouTube that make you keep watching the whole thing. There's a litany of formats. You've got to shift the perception of Cadillac to being an EV maker against Tesla, which is Tesla. What's your what's your plan? How do, how do you how do you use all those tools? Um, you're going to hate this answer, but we're, we're going to have to use all those tools. Um, yeah. and it's, it's really, you know, I think next year is the year for us to get our story out because the way that we're approaching EV and the way that we're creating these vehicles and, and what we've done is pretty incredible. So it's a matter of getting that story out and getting our vision out, you know, GM's zero, zero, zero vision and how Cadillac fits into that. So some of that is going to be through influencers or people who are experts in or talking about saving the world. Um, and how do we get into that conversation and have like our story told there? And how do we understand, you know, you were talking about Super Cruise, which is incredible. And I we talk about the Super Cruise effect. Like, so Super Cruise, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, is our hands-free driving. And we are actually the first hands-free driving in the automotive industry. And there's a moment where you're in this car, you push a button and you take your hands off the wheel and you almost like can't breathe for a minute. And you're like, is this car going to keep <laughs> turning around the curves of the road and going 60 miles per hour and I'm going to be safe? And it works. And then you, you're just like, wow. So it's like telling that story of like what our technology is and can do things like AR nav, where instead of having to look at your nav screen or anything else, there's this AR. It's, it's incredible. I, I drive an Escalade and I can often see the road better and what's going on in my AR nav than I can on the road itself because it's so intense on this OLED screen. So um, things like night vision, it's another cool one. I uh, have a place in the mountains in the Poconos and night vision, it's like you feel like you're in the army, right? And then there was a deer that was coming towards the road and I saw it, uh, which I wouldn't have seen otherwise. So like as we start to tell these technology stories, I think people will start to understand. And then as people understand where we fit in that. So it's going to have to be firing on all channels next year. You named a bunch of technologies. Some of them are directly competitive. I, I'm just going to keep bringing up Tesla. There are other companies to compete with, I'm sure. But do you think you have to make the direct comparison and say we're better than Tesla self-driving stuff? Do you have to ignore it? I'm curious. You've got, yep, you got to use all these tools. But inside of those places, do you tailor the message and say, we want to get people who are considering a Tesla to consider us? And here we're making that direct comparison. Or is it a little broader and just saying, hey, look at how cool this is? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's a little broader. I like I'm not taking anything away from Tesla innovation. And I think that mm -hmm. that Tesla is just in a way, it's amazing what they've done and, and very different from where we are. You know, when you look at EV being about one percent or so of the auto market now, you know, in under five percent, let's say, then there's a lot of room there. So I don't need to like go there's the, the, I think the trajectory of EV growth is going to be huge once we get the infrastructure, once we have the products. And I, and I think that the pandemic and how people saw some of the changes in the world, like my, one of my favorite facts from the pandemic is there was a study done in April and the earth was vibrating less because we were moving around. Like, I think things like that 
is going to drive EV adoption. So we're going to have amazing products, I think, at exactly the right time. Yeah, I don't need to go say this is better. Other publications will tell you our self-driving is better. I don't need to. <laughs> Where's my fleet of influencer escalates? Melissa, come on. <laughs> we're going to take another break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Melissa how the pandemic has changed Cadillac's plans. Okay, we're back. One of the things that I've been doing that has really stood out is everyone tells me various trends have been dramatically accelerated by the pandemic. And one of the biggest trends is e-commerce. Obviously, everyone's shopping from home. You don't sell what I would think of as an e-commerce friendly product. I don't think you're going to sell Escalades on Amazon anytime soon. Has that accelerated for you? Is that something you're thinking like, we should make it easier to just buy a car from home? You've, I mean, and you have... Jim is a big company, lots of dealers, lots of relationships. Is that something you can just move? Is that something that has accelerated? This is one of the things that I think of when we look at silver linings and things that came out of the pandemic. I think in automotive, it was very hard to consumer behavior just was what it was. You buy a car by going into the dealership and doing it a certain way. And what this really gave us was the gift of being, a, we, we already had, Jim has an e-commerce platform. It's called Shop, Click, Drive, and it's integrated in with our dealers. Usage on that was lower just because consumers didn't really want to engage with us that way. They wanted to go in and haggle with the finance manager, how, you know, however you do it. So, you know, I talked about Cadillac Live and how we're changing how people shop that way. So we are, I think, Automotive, whereas other people may have seen just higher uptake of things, I think we were able to actually pull in some of our development um, for things that were supposed to come out next year. We pulled up the development of them and we've seen big shifts in the way that people buy cars. It always culminates in the dealer. I think our dealers are one of our best assets, but how we let the dealers best use their time. Like if someone wants to look at Cadillac Live, find out about all these vehicles, and then shop, like look on Shop, Click, Drive, see how much that costs. Then they can go have a very good, educated conversation with that dealer, and it helps them free up their resources. So it's been, it's been an interesting thing with the with the pandemic. How many cars have you sold where people click a button and the car just shows up? Is that something you can do yet? So click a button and the car shows up. There, it's It happened probably more than you think. So... I mean, the car, you know, at some someday the car will be able to drive itself there when, <laughs> when it's done. But what is happening now, a lot of our dealers have like th this is something luxury de uh, dealers offer that customers never use, which is concierge service. If you want to get your car serviced, you can call the dealer and they will come pick it up. They can drop off a loaner if you need it and go back. Same with with delivering a car. There are some states where you can't do it. But there was a lot of things where a consumer would configure the whole deal online. They would then, you know, talk to someone to arrange uh, delivery and they'd come and sign and take the car. So it actually it's it, it, it happens more than you would think. And it's it's really interesting. I had the delivery service. One of my cars needed servicing uh, while we were at home. It was pretty like crazy to just like sit in your house get up from a meeting, give someone your keys. He like disinfects them. He goes and gets in the car. And a couple hours later, you know, your car's back. It was great. What's next for Cadillac as you think about marketing the brand next year after the pandemic, 
people are maybe not going to want to look at screens so much as we all have for the past year. Do you think you need to make a shift in in how advertising works again, sort of post we're all locked inside? You are asking me my biggest question. And not only just for next year, when I think we want to look at screens less, I think that when we just look at this year, we know behavior is totally shifting. People are gaming now. We're, we're experimenting in gaming. People are spending more time in that. People are not watching sports anymore. So how that behavior is changing and what people are going to do is my biggest question, but I definitely want to be there, hopefully helping them make that experience better in a safe way uh, as it changes. What's the biggest, you're, you're a data person. What's the biggest signal to you about changing behavior right now? There's a few of them. And I, th- I probably just gave two of the bigger examples, looking at sports ratings being down so much. That was really a surprise to me. Gaming being so big right now. Um, I think what was amazing was how many people sitting alone in their home found a sense of community through gaming and what an amazing thing that's been. Um, so I think those are those are two of the I think bigger things right now um, that I've that I've seen. Well, that was terrific. Thank you so much, Melissa. I, I told you I was going to make you do like marketing 101, and I really appreciate you going along for the ride there. Thanks. That was fun. Thanks again to Melissa Grady for taking the time to talk today. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It is produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. We'll see you then.